In his autobiography, Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a pastor walking along the street with uh, a man, a drunk man, leaning against a lamppost. And this man calls out to this pastor, and he says, hey, do you remember me? To which the pastor replies, no, why should I? Because I'm one of your converts, said the man. And quick on his feet, the pastor quipped, well, you must be one of mine. You're certainly not one of the Lord's. Which raises the question, how can you tell the difference between a man who's a convert of a man or a man who's a convert of the Lord's? How can you tell if a man has been truly converted to the Lord Jesus Christ? What kind of convert are you? Are you a convert of a man or a convert of the Lord Jesus? What's the difference between the two? Today, from Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 25, we learn that a true convert of the Lord receives the word of God and repents of wickedness. A true convert receives the word of God and repents of wickedness. What does it matter? Why should any of us be concerned to be a convert of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus, and not of a man? Because if we are a convert of a man, we'll perish into eternal destruction. But if we're a convert of the Lord Jesus, we will be received into eternal glory. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning together from Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 25. Let me encourage you to open your Bible, turn in your copy of God's Word or one of the Bibles provided to Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 25. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 916. Last week, we studied the first uh, portion of Acts chapter 8. We saw that the good news of Jesus Christ will not be stopped. In accordance with Jesus' command in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the gospel, the good news, was to go out from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. And after focusing on preaching the good news of Jesus in Jerusalem for the first really seven chapters of the book of Acts, in, Luke, in, in Acts chapter 8, Luke, he turns his attention to those territories who have not yet heard the good news about the arrival of God's Messiah and Savior. The gospel comes to Samaria in the first part of Acts chapter 8. We learned there that the good news of the Lord Jesus would not be stopped by persecution or prison. While the apostles and a few believers stayed in Jerusalem to lament Stephen's death, he had been stoned for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, a few stayed to lament his death and to remain as a faithful witness there. But other Christians were scattered. They scattered to Samaria, like Philip. He scattered, he spread the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to Samaria. And as he took the good news of Jesus to Samaria in verses 5 to 8 of Acts chapter 8, we're reminded that the gospel will not be stopped by divisions, by demons, or by disabilities. The breach between the northern kingdom of Israel, from which the Samaritans came, And the southern kingdom of Judah was being healed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel is not going to be stopped by those old divisions. And as Philip ministers, the demons who oppose Jesus in his ministry to release prisoners from their bondage to sin and death, they were being driven out through Philip's ministry. But not only that, you see there in Acts chapter 8 verses 5 to 8 that Philip has this ministry to those with disabilities. And they're receiving a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. Of God, The gospel is, is on the move and it will not be stopped. Today, we learn that the good news of Jesus Christ will not be stopped by false conversions or fake repentance. In verses 9 to 25 of Acts chapter 8, the narrative it slows down to examine the nature of true faith in three scenes. In verses 9 to 13, we encounter Samaria's acceptance and Simon's amazement. In verses 14 to 17, we see the Apostles' interest and the Spirit's inclusion. Then in verses 18 to 25, we see Simon's reach for power and Peter's request for repentance. Through these three scenes, a true faith and a false faith emerges. The people of Samaria express a true faith in Jesus, while Simon the magician 
expresses a false faith. As the gospel goes out, sometimes false professions will be made alongside true professions. Our responsibility in all of this is to receive the word of God and to repent of all known wickedness. Our responsibility is to truly embrace Jesus Christ as he's freely offered to us in the gospel and to freely offer him to all. Let's begin with our first point, which is this, Samaria's acceptance and Simon's amazement. This is what we find in verses 9 to 13. Follow along as I read verses 9 to 13 and notice how Samaria and Simon are contrasted. Verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now the first contrast between Samaria and Simon is really found in that first word, but, of verse 8. In the verses immediately preceding our text, Luke told us that Samaria had received the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with much joy. And it's at that point that he immediately introduces a contrast. There was a city and Samaria that was filled with much joy, but there was this magician named Simon. Simon, we're told, practiced magic. Now, when the Bible talks about magic, it's not talking about kind of the illusions of David Copperfield or the sleight of hand with those guys messing with the cards. That's not what the Bible has in mind when it thinks about magic. When the Bible talks about magic, it's, it's talking about kind of demonic divination, satanic sorcery. That's what the Bible has in mind when it is thinking about the category of magic. So that's what we thought about earlier when we read from Exodus chapter 7. Magic in the Bible is opposed to God and it's opposed to God's righteousness. And the Samaritans should have known this about magic. They, they were those who believed, really, in the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah. And Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 to 12, has some coarse words for magic, really. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 to 12, we read this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. That's the thinking that the Bible has about magic. And the Samaritans, those who profess to believe in the first five books of the Bible, should have remembered what Deuteronomy said about magicians and what they did. The people of Samaria had not heeded Deuteronomy 18, and Simon had been amazing them with his magic. And since magic is almost always opposed to God, it's not surprising that Simon would proclaim that he's somebody great. See that in verse 9. And the people of Samaria were even ascribing to Simon divine powers. That's that description there in verse 10. And you can bet that Simon loved the praise he received and the power he wielded. Twice in verses 10 and 11, Luke tells us that the people of the city paid attention to Simon. And they paid attention to him because he amazed them with his magic. Now we, we ought to stop and look in the mirror. Simon is actually something of a mirror for us. Though we may not um, be those who amaze others with, with magic like Simon, we all long for, for prominence, for praise, even sometimes for power over others. How have you sought the attention of others? Why have you sought the attention of others? Re reflect on your, your heart for a moment. Simon wanted to be known as the one with great godlike power. Maybe your sights are a little lower than Simon's. But if you're honest with yourself, we, we've all longed for attention too. At times we've all wanted to be known for being great for, for this thing or, or that thing. I mean, maybe you want to be known for being a great pastor, a great husband, a great mom, a great teacher, a great lawyer, a great coach, a great student, a great athlete, a great church member. 
being some of these things are not bad in and of themselves. The hard question in all of this is whether we're, we're seeking attention, seeking to, to draw glory and honor away from God and to ourselves. In our, our search for attention and significance in this world, we forget that our significance is not dependent on what others think about us or say about us or even what authority they entrust to us. Teenagers, I think you especially need to hear this. Our significance is not dependent upon what others think or say about us. Whether they like us on social media, or whether they give us a thumbs down. Our significance is bound up with God and what He thinks about us. We're significant not because of what we can or will do, but because of what God has already done. He made us in His image, and therefore we have significance. And so we're called to point to Him, to give Him prominence, praise, and authority in our lives. If you're a Christian, you don't have to fight, scratch, and claw for the attention of this world. For God, the holy God, the gracious, good, and sovereign God, who knows all things, who's all-powerful, He has turned His ear toward His children, and He is paying attention to your prayers. Christian, you have the attention and the affection and the adoration of the most significant being in the whole universe. You don't need the attention of anyone else. Rest, revel, rejoice in your Father's love for you. Simon's a mirror, but so is Samaria. Often when we're not seeking attention, we're paying attention to all sorts of people. For a time, the people of Samaria were paying attention to Simon. They were interested in what he did. Samaria is a mirror for us in that way too. Who do you watch with interest in this world? Who do you pay attention to? Why, why do you give them your attention? Do you want to be like them? Do they, do they teach you how to live wisely in this world? Do they teach you how to walk with Jesus, how to read God's word, how to pray, how to make practical God-honoring decisions? Choose carefully who you pay attention to. Sometimes that will show or reveal a kind of orientation of our hearts. It, it may show whether we long for the things of this world or the next. Children, teenagers, let me just say to you again, be careful, choose carefully who you pay attention to. They can either lead you closer to the Lord or further away from Him. Thankfully, in God's grace, He turned the people of Samaria's attention away from Simon and to Philip. There's a, a shift there in verse 12. Suddenly, the people of Samaria are not paying attention to what they saw, but what they heard. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says in Romans 10, 17. That's why we emphasize the preaching of God's Word here at ABC. Faith comes by hearing. And the people of Samaria heard and believed the message that Philip preached about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what is this message that Philip was preaching? Philip, he was preaching that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament's hopes. He was the seed that God had promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that would come to crush the serpent Satan. He was the prophet that God would raise up like Moses and speak God's word to God's people. He was the priest in the order of Melchizedek who would save God's people from their sins by offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross, shedding his blood for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. Jesus was the king in the line of David who would come to rule over God's people and reconcile that broken kingdom of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He would reconcile and reunite them and rule over them in love. And we know that by virtue of his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into glory. And now that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is the Jesus that Philip proclaimed. And Philip was proclaiming that Jesus was reuniting that divided kingdom of Israel. As these disciples went out and heralded the good news to these Samaritans, there is a Savior from sin. These disciples, as they're offering Jesus, as people like Philip are offering Jesus, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom are being brought back together. And as the, the book of Acts unfolds, we'll see that Gentiles too will be received into God's kingdom. 
Because Jesus is not just the Savior of Jewish peoples or people from a partial Jewish lineage like the Samaritans, but Jesus is the Savior of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Do you see the true response of the people of Samaria to Philip's preaching there in verse 12? When they believed, they were baptized. There are at least two important B's in that sentence. Belief and baptism. According to the Bible, belief is is knowledge, it's conviction, it's trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So when when we say that we believe, we're saying we know who Jesus is and what he has done. When we say we believe, we're saying that we are convinced that on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done, we are convinced that he is able to save us. And when we say that we believe, we actually entrust ourselves to him alone for salvation. We place ourselves in his care to save us and rescue us from God's wrath against our sin. This is what the citizens of Samaria were doing. They listened carefully to Philip's preaching. They came to know who Jesus was and what Jesus did. They were convinced of his saving power and they entrusted themselves to Jesus as their Savior and Lord. They did all of this in response to hearing the word. And it was only after they had believed that they were baptized. And if you haven't recognized it now, I'm up on my Baptist soapbox. But I've got it right here in the text. So it's completely legitimate for me to talk to you about baptism. Right? Verse 12. When they believed, and then the end of the verse, they, they were baptized. Everywhere there is a baptism in the Bible, it follows belief. And that's just how Jesus said to do it in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus said, make disciples and baptize them. So, so in other words, if you're going to baptize somebody, they have to be a disciple. A student, follower, of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who has entrusted their lives to Him. Only disciples, only those who are believing, trusting, and following Jesus are the proper subjects of baptism. And at the end of verse 12, look at what Luke tells us. He tells us that both men and women were baptized. Luke, in his Gospel and in Acts, is at pains to make clear that not only are Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles participants in God's kingdom, but so are men and women. He's already told us in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, that women have a share in suffering for Christ. And now he reminds us that they have a share in the sign of being baptized with Christ and into Christ. And in that day and age, sometimes women weren't included in various aspects of religious ceremonies. But Luke is signaling that in the kingdom of Jesus, men and women are co-heirs of the grace of life. So sisters, take to heart Take this to heart, that you are, you're not second-class citizens in Jesus' kingdom. You are daughters of the Most High God, and you are called to identify with the Lord Jesus in the wonderful sign of baptism. But what does baptism portray? Just ever so briefly, it portrays our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. In baptism, we are publicly proclaiming that we're united to the Lord Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We're saying that we died to sin and we're raised to live in new life with Him. In baptism, we are publicly portraying that we've been washed, we've been cleansed of our sin. It's important for those who are being baptized to understand all that baptism portrays and proclaims. It also visibly demonstrates that we believe not only that Jesus was raised from His grave, as we're identifying with Him in that sign, but that we too have the hope of being raised from our graves on the last day when Jesus returns. Baptism is a a beautiful picture of our faith, of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not been baptized upon your public profession of faith, if you're a disciple of the risen Lord Jesus, then you need to consider carefully whether or not you ought to be obedient to the Lord Jesus and His command for you to be baptized. And if you want help in thinking through whether you ought to be baptized, then please don't hesitate to speak with me at the door after the service. Talk with one of the elders of of this church family. We'd be delighted to help you think through whether or not you should follow Jesus' command to be baptized. Now, I, I don't know if you noticed this. I'm off my soapbox now. I don't know if you noticed this, but Luke, he actually keeps the Samaritans and Simon somewhat separated. Um, In in verses 11 and 12, Luke is speaking about the Samaritans. And then in verse 13, he kind of especially calls out Simon, doesn't he? Luke, he especially wants to draw our attention to Simon. as As if to say, look, here's something of a celebrity conversion. I mean, Luke uses the same language to describe Simon's conversion as the Samaritans' conversion. Simon believed... And he was baptized like they were. 
But notice what Luke emphasizes as he kind of closes out this description of Simon's behavior there in verse 13. He says that Simon continued with Philip. Scholars will tell you that kind of a more literal translation of that phrase is he attached himself to Philip. Uh, Here we have Simon paying attention to Philip just as the people of Samaria used to pay attention to Simon. And Luke tells us that Simon saw the signs and great miracles performed and that he was amazed. Simon, he used to be the one doing the amazing, as verses 9 and 11 told us. It seems like Simon is experiencing Philip's ministry like the Samaritans experienced his magic. Simon is concerned with seeing Philip and the wonders he performs, whereas the Samaritans were concerned with hearing Philip and the wonderful good news that he proclaimed. These, I think, are subtle signals from Luke that what Simon may be experiencing is not quite the genuine faith that Samaritans were expressing. It's a difference of a true convert. Not just seeing the great power and wonder and love of Christianity, but of seeing Christ himself and attaching ourselves not to men, but to the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself in his own ministry recognized when people were following him because of the signs that he was performing and not because of who he was. So so we get a hint of this in John's gospel. John writes this in John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knew that the people weren't really trusting in him. At the end of the day, they were trusting in his signs. They were were following him because of these signs that he was doing. And later on in John's Gospel, we see that some people leave him because of these signs and weren't believing his words. Something like that may be occurring with Philip, even though he may not know it yet. Simon was intrigued by Philip's power when he should have been keying in on Philip's proclamation. Like uh, like, like, like was occurring in, in Jesus' ministry and day. Jesus knows. He, he knows all of our hearts, as John said there in John chapter 2, verse 24. He, he knows which one we're giving him, whether we're giving him a, a dependence based upon signs or a dependence based upon the salvation he has secured. Why are you following Jesus? Is it because of all of the amazing things that come with Christianity? Or is it because of Christ and who he is? And what he's done. We've seen Samaria's acceptance of Philip's preaching. And we've seen Simon's amazement at Philip's signs. The difference between the two, I think, betrays a fault line between true faith and false faith. In verses 14 to 17, we see the apostles' interest in Philip's evangelistic ministry in Samaria. As well as the Spirit's inclusion of the Samaritans into the people of God. This is our second point. The apostles' interest and the Spirit's inclusion. Follow along now as I read verses 14 to 17 of Acts chapter 8. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then, They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Well, it's clear from verse 14 that the apostles have a deep interest in what's occurring in Samaria. Amazing things are happening. The the kind of ministry that was happening in the early days in Jerusalem is happening in Samaria. People are being converted left and right. Uh, People are being healed. Demons are being driven out. And above all, the word of God is being received. That's what that phrase, uh, the, they, they received the word of God in verse 14, means to convey. It means to convey that they were being converted, truly believing. Uh, this phrase is used later in Acts chapter 11, verse 1, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, to, to communicate the same thing. That receiving the word amounts to receiving Christ as Savior and Lord. And as we thought about last week, the word of God is being received in Samaria. It's, it's not only consistent with Jesus urging his disciples to be his witnesses in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But it's also a wonderful and surprising act of reconciling uh, among people who were formerly hostile to one another. This is undoubtedly raising the apostles' interest. They personally wanted to confirm and rejoice 
that the gospel is taking root in Samaria. And they wanted to demonstrate that the Samaritans were part of the same church of Jesus as the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, the apostles were interested in these mass conversions that were taking place and the people being healed and the demons being driven out and even in the conversion of a masterful magician. Something of a celebrity in the region. And perhaps Simon shows us that we might want to be slow and careful when it comes to celebrity Christians or celebrity conversions. The apostles, they weren't wrong in expressing interest in Philip's ministry. And any pastor should really welcome any investigation into his ministry, whether or not it's faithful according to the word of God. I don't think that's what they were going down there to do with Philip. Rather, I think they were going down there to confirm that these saints, these brothers and sisters in the Lord, were really part of the same church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostles, after all, they were Jesus-authorized representatives. They no doubt wanted to see these saints in Samaria flourish. They, They wanted them to receive the sign of the Holy Spirit so that all might know that they're included in the kingdom of God. And I think that's how we have to think about what's occurring here in these verses. We we need to remember that all who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit. That's what the scriptures teach us. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we read this. In Him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. See, believers, when we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. What is being talked about here in Acts chapter 8 and what took place in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost was a special sign of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus' disciples, they were were believing on Him even as they were waiting there in the upper room. But there was a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit so the people in Jerusalem saw and knew that the Lord Jesus really was raised and He really was reigning and He really ought to rule in their lives. And this is what is hoped for here in Samaria. The apostles want this visible testimony to take place to show everyone that these Samaritans are, are included in the Messianic kingdom. So what we're seeing here is something like uh, Pentecost in Jerusalem. It's kind of like Pentecost in Samaria. Like Pentecost in Jerusalem was a unique, unrepeatable, redemptive historic event. Uh, So this too is kind of a a unique event in the the history of the church. It serves to announce that the Holy Spirit uh, is including not merely Jews, but also Samaritans in the Messianic kingdom. And in fact, as we keep moving through the book of Acts, we're going to see something similar happen when the good news of Jesus Christ is preached in Gentile lands. So, So listen to what happens among the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 46. Luke writes, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. When the gospel goes into new territory in the book of Acts, there is typically a a visible symbol of the Holy Spirit to know that the gospel has made a new advance in a region that it hasn't been there before and that it's been joyfully received. So if Acts chapter 2 was Jerusalem Pentecost and Acts chapter 10 verses 44 to to 46 is a a Gentile Pentecost, then what we have here in Acts chapter 8 verses 14 to 17 is something of a Samaritan Pentecost. John Stott, he explains what's going on here like this. He says, the most natural explanation is that this was the first occasion on which the gospel had been proclaimed not only outside Jerusalem, but inside Samaria. This is clearly the importance of the occasion in Luke's unfolding story, since the Samaritans were a kind of halfway house between Jews and Gentiles. Now, as we read the text, I I wonder if if you kind of had the question, so, so why is there this kind of pause or this display or delay in seeing the, the Holy Spirit poured out? Well, truth be told, I don't have a great answer to that question. Um, For the special outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, it doesn't actually really follow a set formula. So you can't find A happens and then B happens and then C happens and the Spirit's poured out. Sometimes those events are are kind of jumbled up together. So we don't really have a, a great question of why there's this delay. But it probably involves the apostles' presence as their, their interest in their involvement there. It serves to underscore uh, their leadership in, in the church of the Lord Jesus as a whole at this time, and their, their appointment by the Lord Jesus to, to oversee His church during this time. It serves to underscore that 
both Jews and Samaritans and really later Gentiles. Because as you, if you remember, Peter was at that Gentile uh, outpouring of the Spirit as well. That they're all a part of the Messiah's kingdom. And, and why? Why do the apostles lay hands on them? Well, this simply seems to be a, a sign, a physical and visible sign to all involved that there is true and genuine fellowship in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. Too often we forget that this is an extraordinary event. That the divide between the Jews and the Samaritans lasted for a long, long time. Uh, their divisions were deep. They, 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 they were protracted. Their divisions were not insignificant. But the powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit showed that in the words of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, that there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So that the Holy Spirit powerfully and publicly displayed that the Samaritans were included in Jesus' kingdom. And we need to step back and think about what can we learn from this passage, the apostles' interest especially. What can we learn from the apostles' interest in the Samaritans' reception of the word and the Spirit's inclusion? We should certainly recognize that we're not apostles, right? And that we will not be part of these unique and unrepeatable uh, redemptive historical advances. And still, we should share an interest in God's work in the lives of believers. So one of my great joys as a pastor in this congregation is that I get to sit down with many of you and conduct membership interviews with another elder. And we get to hear your testimony about how you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a great joy for us to hear of God's power, especially the power of the Holy Spirit in your life in drawing you to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we have an interest in you coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and the elders are the ones who, who shouldn't just have that interest alone. But members as well should have that interest. We should be interested in hearing about how we've all come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if, if after the service you draw a blank about what to talk to somebody else about, ask them how they came to know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. Show, show an interest in their conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so how did you come to receive and believe the word of Jesus? And notice too that the apostles, they prayed for these believers in Samaria. What about you? Do you pray for new believers? In the, the weeks and the, the months ahead, we, we might have the privilege of, of baptizing new believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we should pray for them. We should pray especially for them, that they would persevere in trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Show an interest in their lives and do what you can to help them follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And be sure to pray for those who've been following the Lord Jesus for a long time too. Pray for those old Christians, if you know what I mean. Believers, they, they, they need help, these old saints, or those who've been following the Lord Jesus for a time. They too need prayer and help in following the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these discussions, here after the service, here in the sanctuary, or downstairs in the fellowship hall, or wherever you might be, it is really okay to pause, to stop your conversation, and to pray for them right there. That might even be a wonderful blessing to them in that time. We ought to be interested in each other's lives. And not be so interested that we run in our own lives that we just run out the door on the Lord's Day. So, so plan your Sunday to spend time with the saints talking after the service. Uh, don't, don't press things right up against the service. Uh, maybe plan to have lunch with fellow believers. Or plan to, to talk with them for, for a period of time. Um, we, we want to be praying about and, and thinking about how we can show an interest in each other's lives. So, so let's ask one another, maybe after the service, what did you learn from Acts chapter 8 this morning? What are you going to be thinking about this afternoon? What, what do you think the Lord is, is calling you to, to ponder on or, or to repent of from God's word or to trust him for? We should show this kind of spiritual interest in one another's lives. And it's good and right for brothers and sisters in Christ to do this. Uh, we're, we're spiritual family. Family cares. Family shares. And if the Spirit has included you into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you ought to show that inclusion by your interest. And don't just show your interest immediately after the service. You can also invite other brothers and sisters in Christ over at your home or out to coffee or, or, or to lunch. We should have rich fellowship here on Sundays, yes, but we should also have rich fellowship with one another throughout the week. The Scriptures commend to us encouraging one another and all the more, even as the day of the Lord Jesus Christ 
draws near. If you want community, if you want to be connected, and you want to have consequential relationships with fellow Christians, then you have to be involved, you have to be interested, and you have to initiate relationships with others. You have to put in the time and the effort. Christianity cannot be done for you. Christianity is not an Amazon religion where everything you want is delivered to you in two days and somebody else does the delivery in the assembly. No, you have to express interest. You have to invest and you have to initiate. We should show this kind of interest in each other's lives. A real genuine interest in the lives of fellow believers shows that there's a real belief in Jesus. After all, in John chapter 13, verse 35, our Savior said that all people would know that we are His disciples by the love that we have for one another. Let's give ourselves to showing this interest and this love toward one another. Well, Luke has communicated to us that the saints in Samaria have been included in God's kingdom. But what about Simon? Right? Verses 14 to 17 are something of an interlude, right? We, we leave Simon in verse 13 with a slightly worrying description. And then we come back to him in verse 18. What should we make of his conversion? We get the rest of the story in verses 18 to 25. And here we see Simon's reach for power and Peter's request for repentance. This is our third point. Simon's reach for power and Peter's request for repentance. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Simon, he saw Philip's signs in verse 13. Now he saw Peter's signs in verse 18. His eyes seem to almost always be fixed upon God's power displayed. And now he wants that power for himself. He reaches for it. He offers to pay for it. Notice how self-focused Simon was. Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Philip and Peter had stolen Simon's show in Samaria. Perhaps Simon thinks if he can't beat him, join him. Can I have this power too? And he offers silver. Just as magical secrets, right, can be purchased in our day, so magical arts can be purchased in that day. It's striking to think back on kind of bad uses of money in the book of Acts alone, right? In, in Acts chapter 1, we're told of Judas and how he received silver for betraying Jesus. We're told that he fell headlong in this field that he purchased and his bowels burst open and gushed out. Then in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, Peter had supernatural insight to know that Ananias and Sapphira were lying to him about the money they were giving to the church, and both of them were struck down dead immediately. Yes, money plays a destructive role in the lives of many in the Scriptures. We need only think of Balaam and Achim and Gehazi in the New Testament, the rich young ruler who talked with Jesus in the New. According to the Bible... Greed will get you in the end. And what was it that Jesus said about money? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, He said, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's probable that Simon was seeking to spend money to make money. These powers he could, he could use to receive attention back from these Samaritans. Just as he accumulated magical powers over the years, this is a, a new trick he wanted to put into his bag. But Christianity cannot be confused with magic. The Spirit cannot be bought and sold like a bag of magic tricks. He, the Spirit, is a gracious gift of God. And Peter makes that painfully clear to Simon, doesn't he? Peter, exercising that same kind of divine insight that he had in the case of Ananias 
and Sapphira gets right to the heart of the matter. And we should be clear, it is a matter of the heart. Simon didn't love the Lord, he wanted to be the Lord. He wanted to be called again the power of God that is great. He wanted to amaze the people again. In verse 20, Peter issues this dire warning. Do you see it there? May your silver perish with you. J.B. Phillips in his translation of this verse says, to hell with you and your silver. Peter's words are not quite a curse or a condemnation. Rather, they're a threat. They're a warning. A warning of impending doom and destruction that will surely come upon Simon if he does not repent. And the same is true for all. If we do not repent and turn to the Lord Jesus, we too will perish, eternally perish. Simon's attempt to purchase the power of the Spirit in the course of church history has given rise to this uh, category called simony. It's in days gone by that the Roman Catholic Church particularly fell prey to the curse of simony. That's when they sold bishoprics, positions for bishops, to wealthy families. They'd give them to their son. A cousin of simony happens today when pastors and preachers try to purchase spiritual power when they buy someone else's sermon series. Well, that, that's a good one. That did great work there. Maybe if I use that here and just put it here, it'll help and display power. That's not how God works. He cannot be bought or sold. His spirit, His power cannot be bought or sold. And it seems today that there are just as many sellers as there are buyers. Peter, he makes Simon's predicament painfully clear in verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Now that language of part and lot, that's language really from the, the Old Testament that talks about an inheritance. Simon, you don't have this inheritance from God. Peter's warning Simon. Simon, is, is right now you have no inheritance with God's people. And that Greek word underneath our, our English word matter in verse 21 is actually logos. And Peter may be saying, uh, you have no share in our gospel. No share in this word. Uh, you, may, you have no share in bestowing the gift of the Spirit. That might be another possibility as well. Uh, the latter is certainly true, that Simon doesn't have a share in bestowing the gift of the Spirit. But the former, that he might not have a share in the gospel, is also likely, given what Peter says there at the end of verse 21. He says, your heart is not right before God. That word right has connotations of being, uh, uh, connotations of, of straight. Uh, so, so Peter's literally telling Simon that his heart is crooked in the sight of God. Simon has not dealt with God in a true, right, direct, straightforward, honest manner. What about you, professing Christian? Have you dealt with God in a straightforward, honest manner? I mean, Simon was a professing Christian too. We're told that he believed and that he was baptized. But his heart was not right. And as it's been said a thousand times, if the heart is wrong, then all is wrong. What about you? Have you been dealing directly, honestly, straightforwardly with God? Or are you bargaining with God in some way? Are you trying to trade your good works for His good pleasure? In some roundabout way, are you saying, God, I'll give you my Sunday or my time or my money if you would give me a promotion or a spouse or a successful career or good health or spiritual maturity or some other earthly blessing? God cannot be bought or bargained with. And notice what Peter says about this kind of dealing with God. He says that it's wickedness. This wickedness needs to be repented of, which means it needs to be turned away from. Repentance is like going in one direction and then doing a complete reverse and heading in the other direction, especially to the Lord Jesus. It needs to be left in the dust, Peter says to Simon. And notice there's a sense in which Simon needs to own his wickedness. Look at what he says in, Peter says in verse 22, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. It's like Peter saying, Simon, you've got to own this. This is yours. It was wrong. It was wicked. Friends, have you owned your wickedness before the Lord? Have you agreed with God that it's wicked, that it's vile, that it's evil? That it was and does deserve condemnation? Have you repented, turned away from your sin? And turn to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. True faith involves receiving the word of God and repenting of wickedness. That's the mark of a true convert. And one of the most amazing things to me about this passage is that Peter holds out the hope of forgiveness to Simon, doesn't he? He says, Simon, repent and pray to the Lord that you may be forgiven. 
Notice again how Peter's he's making this a heart issue. This isn't about behavior modification. This isn't about just doing things right for a few days and then falling off and heading in the wrong direction again. This is about repentance from the heart and pleading with God from the heart for the forgiveness of your sins. Friend, have you repented? Have you prayed and asked God to forgive you of your sins all because of what Jesus has done, that He lived for you, the righteous life that you've not lived? Have you prayed and asked God to forgive you all because Jesus has died for you, bearing the punishment that's due to your sins and wickedness? Have you asked God to forgive you all because Jesus has been raised from the grave, proving that you might be accepted as righteous in God's sight and forgiven because of Jesus' work? Have you asked the Lord Jesus, have you asked God for forgiveness? Now Peter, he honestly tells Simon what he sees. There are these ad campaigns out there these days, aren't there? If you see something, say something. It's striking that that's what Peter does, isn't it? Like he sees this wickedness in Simon's life and he says something about it. That's kind of a challenge for us in our evangelism, isn't it? Shouldn't we, if we see sin in our, our friend's life, who's not following Lord Jesus, should, should we say something about it? I have love for them and invite them to the Savior? We, I think we need to do this in our evangelism. This is what it looks like to, to love those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, to honestly tell them their state before the Lord. I mean, Peter honestly tells Simon what he sees. And Simon should listen, for, for Peter has seen through the hearts of people in the book of Acts before. And Peter sees that Simon is in the gall of bitterness, or literally the bile of bitterness. Right? His heart is marinating in this poison. And it's going to put him to death. Peter says, I see that you're in this prison as well. You're in this bond of iniquity. He can't escape the chains that his soul is bound in. He needs God to save him. That's why he needs to pray to the Lord for forgiveness. How loving of Peter to tell him so. Simon is so envious of the apostle's gift. And he's angry that God has not given it to him. We can be so much like Simon, can't we? You know, we can be so bitter and angry with God that life hasn't turned out for us like we wanted it to. I mean, it wasn't supposed to go this way. It wasn't supposed to be this hard. I should have that job. I should have a spouse. I should have a kid. I should have obedient kids. I should have happier and holier parents. I should have that guy's ministry. I should have that set of friends. I should have wealth. I should have... You fill in the blank with whatever your heart really longs for and feels entitled to. What do you think you should have? Whatever it is you think you should have, it may reveal that you're bitter toward God. We can become so embittered with God, so angry with Him. And friends, do you know what we should really have? Hell. That's what we really deserve. And yet... In Jesus Christ, we have the free offer of forgiveness of our sins and glory forever with Him. We should repent of all of our bitterness and we should all give thanks to God for the forgiveness found in His Son. What is more, when someone comes up to you and honestly tells you of your spiritual condition and requests that you repent and pray to the Lord, you should do it. You should not respond like Simon. Right? Peter says, Simon, pray. And Simon says, Peter, you pray. Many have wanted to see in Simon's reply hope for his repentance. After all, he asked Peter to pray for him, right? But did you see what he wanted Peter to pray about? He wanted Peter to pray that he would escape punishment. He didn't ask Peter to pray that God would pardon him, forgive him, of his sins, but that God wouldn't punish him. You ask for pardon because you agree with God about your sin. And you agree that it deserves punishment. The, the Bible makes plain that there are two kinds of grief. There's worldly grief and there's godly grief. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 12, I'd encourage you to read it this afternoon, but it teaches us that worldly grief laments the loss of goods, of status, of relationships, of reputation, of comfort. Simon doesn't want to face the discomfort of punishment. But godly grief, on the other hand, 
It doesn't lament all those worldly things. Instead, it laments the offense against God of violating His law, of bringing shame upon His name. Simon is displaying all the evidence of worldly grief, and he is destined to eternally perish just as Peter warned. May it not be so for us. Friend, if you have felt conviction of wickedness and sin, pray to the Lord. There is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is ready, eager, and willing to forgive. As we'll sing in just a few minutes, the penalty was paid in full. The spotless lamb was slain. Friend, Jesus went to the cross to bear the punishment for your sins. And He rose up from the grave in victory over sin and death so that you might be forgiven. Trust in Christ for your salvation. Be converted to Christ as Lord. Repent of wickedness and receive the good news that Jesus offers to you. And for all those who do receive the Word of God, the Word of God's forgiveness in His Son, for all those who repent of wickedness and sin, we don't have to worry about the punishment, the penalty, or the perishing. This is good news. And is it any wonder that the apostles kept preaching this good news to these Samaritan villages on their return to Jerusalem? Brothers and sisters, if we've been converted, if we've received this good news and the forgiveness of our sins, we ought to carry it everywhere we go, too. Friends, brothers and sisters, as we conclude, ask yourself, what kind of convert am I? Are you a man's convert or the Lord's convert? Have you received the word of God with joy like the Samaritans received the word of God? Have you truly turned from your sin and turned to Jesus because you agree with God that your sin is wickedness? And honestly, it should not be that hard to discern, I think. As William Gurnall once said, Can Christ be in your heart and you not know it? Can one king be dethroned and another crowned in your soul and you hear no scuffle? Is the Lord Jesus enthroned in your heart? Is He your king? Are you the Lord Jesus convert? Let's pray together.